Hello, this is Edie. Before we get started, I wanted to make sure you knew first how much we appreciate you, and that in honor of Teacher Appreciation Week, right now at Heinemann.com, you can get 15% off and free shipping on all Heinemann professional books. This offer runs until May 11th. Head on over after the episode. Some restrictions apply. See the website for details. The Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. Heinemann is a provider of resources written by real teachers for real classrooms. Heinemann values teachers as decision makers and students as curious learners. Discover the path to lifelong professional learning at Heinemann.com. Heinemann is dedicated to teachers. I'm Brett from Heinemann. This week on the Heinemann Podcast, we're learning about the importance of personal identity work in education. To understand this work better and its impact on teachers, we're handing this week's podcast over to Heinemann fellow Min Jung Pei. Min teaches 5th and 6th grade in Los Angeles, California. She is committed to equity, inclusion, and progressive education. Min believes that collaboration is at the core of teaching, and working together with students, parents, and teachers can make a significant, powerful, and lasting impact. Min is currently in her first year as a Heinemann fellow, Here now is Min with more on her project. Teaching necessitates knowing and understanding oneself, going beyond knowing child development and curriculum. All teachers should do their own personal identity work in order to be effective. Equity work is best teaching practices. Equity work is not about being an expert, a good or bad person, some magical skills, or an innate ability. It is concrete, explicit, and intentional work that needs to be done consistently. This is what I'm trying to address through my action research project as a part of the Heinemann Fellowship Program. In the first half of this podcast, I talk with Monique Marshall, a social studies teacher at Wildwood School in Los Angeles. She is also a much sought-after workshop presenter. Her workshops focus specifically on diversity, equity, and inclusion work with young children. Monique's presentation topics range from challenging gender stereotypes, inspiring activism, creating multicultural curriculum, building partnerships across difference, relationship building between public and private schools, and designing a K-5 student diversity group. She's also a mother of two teenagers, an activist, an organizer, and identifies as multiracial. Together, we explore the question of what personal identity work is and share how it has impacted our teaching. Thank you so much for doing this. You're a teacher that I have long admired for all the work that you do inside the classroom and outside the classroom. I've told you that I'm, you're my total teacher crush. Aw, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess I wanted to start off by just asking you, what do you think personal identity work is? Personal identity work, period, or in the classroom? Just personal identity work? Everything. Uh-huh. Everything. <laughs> How many hours do I have? Um, so I think there's... Something that I did not learn directly as um, an undergraduate education major, or really even in graduate school, was that a big piece of teaching uh, was me. Uh, I, I didn't really learn, I didn't really understand until I was in the classroom. Um, and even when I was in the classroom, it took some time to get it, that everything about who I was bringing was impacting the learning of the students in front of me and that the students were then impacting me. So there was this uh, relationship that was happening and I was kind of oblivious about my role in being kind of intentional 
around understanding who it was that I was bringing into the classroom. So I think really, I mean, so I've been teaching for 30 years, and I think that for me, understanding my own identity, uh, as I was in my undergraduate education was when I started to become aware of my own racial identity. I identify as biracial woman, but at that point I had no language for my own racial identity. And I had grown up in a colorblind kind of white world. And, you know, people see me and see a person of color. That is not exactly how I saw myself. And I wasn't I just had no words. Like most white folks, I just didn't have a lot of words um, around identity or my own identity. So what was kind of cool was I can I can see now the trajectory of like how my own identity formation impacted what I then brought into my classroom, um, sometimes without thinking and sometimes with a lot of thinking. And so I remember early on in my teaching career, it was like my first year being, you know, my own head teacher self. And I remember thinking like, who am I? Um, and I think every new teacher probably has this question, especially if you've been a teacher in training in some way, if you've been a student teacher or, you know, someone's assistant teacher, you know, I had pulled all the strategies, all my learnings from books and classes, and then the people that I'd been around that I'd been learning from, I pulled all of that into myself. And out of my mouth would come the things that George said, the things that Lisa said, the things that, you know, and I, I remember going home and, and asking myself, who am I? Who am I? And so I imagine that that kind of like that initial who am I question happens to most everyone in the classroom because you're trying to figure out like, how do you do this thing called teaching? And from there, I started just kind of letting myself be me and, and some of the first times that I think I let my own identity really, like I opened the door to, oh, this is actually a piece of me that I didn't learn from anyone else. And I feel like it needs to be part of my classroom. And why haven't I brought this part of me? The first one that was really obvious to me was song. I identify as someone who loves to sing. And in my teacher training, no one ever taught me that teachers sing, you know, the only teachers that sing are like the music teacher. So I started singing in my classroom. I started allowing myself singing with children. And immediately, something about my classroom changed because I was bringing this little piece of myself that came in now everywhere. It was a musical space that changed the like actual tenor of the room. My next memory of bringing something different that like nobody taught me outside of myself was around diversity work. And I remember asking the person that I was working under, asking him, you know, I don't know, when, when do we talk about people? And I feel like there's a great animal study that we do and there's a great land study that we do. And then we study the, the native people, but it's not till like December and those people are like long ago and far away. And he was like, well, Monique, just do it. Just, you know, just do it bring it into the classroom, find a time and do it. And so I started that people study. And he said, make it something regular, give it a time and place. And that people study that was on Fridays for like 45 minutes, I named it the people study because it's the only thing I could think of. And it stuck because it was about people. And um, it became a place for me to explore my own identity and also a place for students. As I was sharing pieces of myself, students 
started sharing pieces of themselves. And so, you know, we were able to talk about race. I'll never forget this one. I was teaching eight and nine year olds and I was talking about how I didn't have language for my own racial identity until I was really an adult. And I was telling them about, I was showing them the inside of my hand and saying, my mom is white. She's lighter than like the inside of my hand and my dad is black. And I showed them the outside of my hand and I said, and he's darker than the outside of my hand. And then I kind of turned my hand and I said, you know, this blending in between is me. And I identify as biracial. And right away there was, you know, another kid in the class that went, me too, right? But even funnier than that, there was a black girl in the class that was sitting directly across from me that said, oh, wait, everybody, I see it, I see it. Look, 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 on Monique's left side, she's lighter, and on her right side, she's darker. <laughs> and everybody's staring at me and looking at me. And, you know, white kids and black kids and Asian kids, like, they're all, like, it's all normalized. Like, you mm-hmm. can look at your teacher and see that she's got some line down the middle of her that only eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds can see mm-hmm. um, that is that showing her biracial identity. And I just remember sitting there trying not to laugh and asking them, wow, do you really see that? And And saying to them, it might be because the light is coming through the window on this side. And so, I, and I turned my face to see. <laughs> and um, anyway, that moment, I remember that moment because it was when I allowed myself to really explore out loud with the students, my own identity and the like me too piece of like, I knew that when I was the same age as that eight year old, I didn't have a me too. I didn't have somebody that I could connect with that way. And to be someone like the white kids that were like really allowed to like inspect me and to really think about, gosh, how does that work? You know, how does biracial identity work? What was the grade level when you did this? Eight and nine-year-olds. Eight and nine-year-olds. Yeah, yeah. And um, in that, I don't know if it was that same class or the next year, but there was another black child who, when I told a similar story (laughs) about my mother and my father, and he said, Oh, gross. And, and, you know, but because I had done my own work, I didn't take it personally. I just leaned forward and I said, you know, Terry, what are you thinking? Like, what's gross? And he was like, white people and black people can make a baby? (laughs) Like in his world, Mm -hmm. that did not happen. He was not aware that there was such a thing as biracial identity or biracial people in his family. All he knew was that black people were black people. And I guess white people were white people, but gross, they don't go together. And so again, like that moment, allowing him space to process through that and like think about then what does that mean about him and what does that mean about his family and just really opened new doors also as for me as a teacher as to wow there are a lot of things going on in the minds of our young people that we don't even know are there I would have never known that he thought that was gross (laughs) (laughs) and it's really important to help him unpack that you Mm -hmm. know otherwise what's going to happen as he as he gets older how's how's he going to you know reshape those thoughts so to me my own identity development as I've grown and continue to grow you know, it only like it deepens my whole toolbox as a teacher. I mean, I feel like it's not like selfish work, you know, where I just get to sit around and like think about myself, but it actually, I don't know, just the more I discover, the more I put out, uh, you know, and the more willing I am to just share aspects of my own identity, 
the more willing kids are. And I actually kind of want to pause there because I think I would identify as an extrovert. Mm-hmm. So I don't mean to say that to be a good teacher, you have to spill your guts in front of kids and you have to tell all the stories about your background. I don't think you do at all. I think there are lots of ways to, um, to engage young people in thinking about identity. And even if I shared none of my own personal stories or it was too hard for me or it wasn't my style or whatever, as long as I had done my work, I feel that I would have a way to help the young people in my classroom access themselves, you know, whether it's through stories that I read aloud or, you know, or through other people that I bring in. I I definitely don't want people to walk away thinking, oh, well, I'm just, I can't do that because... I'm not comfortable, you know, talking about myself. I don't think it has to be about you. And it's never really about you, you know. It's And it is, and it is because yeah. you're the one who's doing yeah. the teaching. Yeah, yeah. It's, oh, and that's the other piece, too. It took me years to really think about what it meant for me as a person of color, or me as a woman, or me as a straight woman, or, you know, all of my identities in the classroom. It took me years to really, like, turn that around and over and think, ooh, how would this sound different, look different, you know, come out differently if it was someone who was gay, someone who was white, someone who was male, you know. And again, nobody ever taught me that in in my schooling, you know. Yeah, it's really the stories that you're sharing about beginning teacher, using other people's words, other people's strategies, other people's pedagogy, Mm -hmm. and then one day realizing, just sharing that one part of yourself, Mm -hmm really resonates with me and I'm wondering if it resonates with other teachers because for me uh, just beginning my teaching I felt like I had to be quote-unquote professional so if I'm professional I'm not their friends I'm their teacher I shouldn't share my entire self and to me that was a real contrast to what I wanted my students to do because I wanted my students to bring their full selves in because only when they do that can they really access learning mm-hmm. right? and only and take risks okay. to grow and challenge themselves. And so that's why for me that personal identity work is so important to teachers. Because if I don't understand myself, how can I teach my students to understand themselves? Mm-hmm. And I realized as I was teaching, there would be certain subject areas that I would avoid mm-hmm. talking about. Because I didn't really understand how to have that conversation. Sure. I didn't have that capacity yet. I didn't have the language and so then my students are learning to avoid those topics too. Yeah. Right? And then once I started attending affinity group meetings, once I started studying different dimensions of self and target, non-target, and all of a sudden I have this like toolbox of mm-hmm. language where I might not be like you were saying, being me, 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 this is my story, my story. I was still uh, modeling right. and teaching my students how to understand their, the world around them by understanding what their perspectives are too, by understanding themselves. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm wondering, what do you think about personal identity work in terms of, is it something teachers need to do? Because it can be a really uh, sensitive subject, mm-hmm. right? Because I feel as though there are a lot of teachers out there that are still where I started from, mm-hmm. where this is just my job. Why are you asking me these really personal questions about myself? Mm-hmm where it can be really emotional, hard, extremely uncomfortable, maybe at times feel unsafe, where it's a job, I come to the classroom, I teach my lessons, I should be able to leave, right? Mm-hmm. What would you say to those folks mm-hmm. about that personal identity work that needs to be done? Well, it's funny. It's like, I think, you know, there's scary stuff for all of us, but 
I guess the first thing I was thinking when you were talking was about that kind of, I want to be professional piece. Um, that was my first thought is that it could be easy to push this way because it feels like that's not really a professional way of being. Like I'm, I want to operate in such a way that I'm respected or whatever. Um, and then I like the first thing I, that popped into my head, I was like, who's, who's professional? Like, you know, what is our model of professional? Who, who are we trying to be? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I thought, well, as teachers of color, are we trying, again, our identities matter, right? So as teachers of color, are we anxious about showing all of the layers of ourselves, you know, or as teachers that identify in any non-target group, are we protecting whatever pieces of ourselves under a layer of being professional, which maybe means being a white professional. Exactly. <laughs> um, or what I've, I've learned or I think I know about what it means to be professional from most people that I've seen in authority who are mostly white. Like, is that what I'm, what I'm learning and, and what I'm uh, afraid of and kind of using as a buffer or something? And if I'm a white teacher or a man or, you know, someone in a, in a non-target position, What's my reason for being afraid to be maybe fully authentic, my fully authentic self? And maybe, you know, pieces of it have to do with the parts of my non-target identity that I've never really practiced exploring before. So I just don't know that it's a thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know that my maleness has anything to explore because I've never had to think about it. Maybe, maybe it's just simply that, but also maybe, you know, it feels not professional, quote unquote, for me as a man or for me in some position of power because there's been some setup. Like basically, I've not been allowed to really fully be myself either. It's kind of like we're all trapped. You right. Know? Right. It's like everyone's trapped. Um, and so someone's got to open the door and say, no, look, actually, like your most professional self is your fullest, truest self. And it doesn't mean that, you know, you have to like, do things that are, I don't know, like screaming, ranting, raving. I don't know what's not professional. I can't even think of, I guess I've never really worried too much about profession. Being, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, but anyway, I think there's something to that. Mm-hmm. There's something to that. And then that wasn't real clear, but I, I feel like there's something about the where we start out and how we try to, you know, how I try as a teacher to be respected by people oh, was, in the community. It was full-on internalized whiteness right. for me. Right. I mean, that was completely right. it. I right. labeled it as professionalism. Right. But again, doing that personal identity work and unpacking it mm-hmm. and looking at oppression at that yeah. at the four levels of institutional, cultural, individual, and interpersonal, mm-hmm. and really interrogating that, I realized, oh, me internalizing whiteness was uh, not necessarily changing myself. It was more hiding myself and compartmentalizing mm. myself. So you sniff that right out. Mm. <laughs> so you're exactly right. But it's so interesting, right? Because then right, then you ask yourself, okay, so what are white people afraid of? And I think there's this some training that we're all humans or somehow trained to think we need to be a certain way. And then there is that piece of it's really hard to see what you can't see, what you know, to be the fish you don't see the water, you, you know, you don't notice that you're swimming in the water. And so then when someone asks you to inspect the water that you're swimming in, you're like, what, why? Like, what's the point? And what a waste of time. And so I know that there's that piece too. But I, I think 
the last part of your question a long time ago when you were asking, <laughs> um, you know, what would you say to someone who was kind of pushing back against unpacking identity because it's tough work and it can be emotional and I, can I just do my job in the classroom and go home? Like, I would say that sometimes it feels hard to do that. It feels hard and maybe like um, it's hard to understand why it's important around all aspects of identity, but I think the easiest one to understand is your identity as a learner. I've been thinking about that a lot. Like, I need to unpack how I learn because the way that I learn tends to be the way that I teach. <laughs> like, I'm really process-oriented. I'm a little bit, I'm not very linear. I really like stories. Um, I really like to put my hands on things. I really like to understand things deeply in order if you just tell me this is why this is how it is, it doesn't stick with me. I need to understand it. I need to sit with things for a long time. Um, I need to mull things over and turn them around and around. And I realize that is totally how I teach. Like that's my go-to. That's how I teach. And what I years ago, when I wasn't really looking at my own identity, I also wasn't looking at my identity as a learner. I wasn't thinking, oh, actually, I would be a more effective teacher if I was very aware that this is how I was going at the teaching thing because actually I learn really well this way. And that that kid over there might really need some linear help <laughs> or like maybe that kid over there doesn't want to process through the thing where it's actually much more difficult for them or this is going to be a stretch. Maybe I need to work on whatever those things are, the better I understand myself as a learner, the better teacher I am. I mean the the more professional you know I am, the more clearly I can like craft lessons. I can think from multiple perspectives because I understand myself and I understand my go-to is this and, and then I understand that there are options. But if I'm not thinking about myself or my own identity, then I'm not being the best teacher that I can be in a really like clear learning style way. So I take that kind of learning about self and I think, well, teachers are main goals. I believe my main goal is to work with other people. Usually they happen to be younger than me, but not always. Work with other people that are called students <laughs> um, and to engage with them in a way that they will be hungry to know things and be interested and continue, have them, help them to be, continue to be interested in learning and knowing things in the world. And how can I do that if I'm not aware of how I'm impacting those students? Like, how can I do that well? So I guess to the person that says, you know, can't I just do my job, teach the, the math, the social studies, the whatever the things are, and leave? I mean, you can do that. I think you can do that. But I don't think it's professional. <laughs> I don't think, I don't think you're actually <laughs> right. doing the job as best as you can. And like... Mm -hmm. I, I would not be doing my best work that way. And so I, I can do that. Well, actually, I don't know if I can. I might quit. But um, <laughs> it would be so sad for me. But, um, but yeah, it, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be my best work. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That, that was, was amazing. That was fun. I learn from you every time we have a conversation. Same. That's, so that's, a, that's good um, teaching and learning. There's no one student or one teacher. Reciprocal learning. That's right. Yeah. Thank you, man. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> Next, I speak with Jason David. He taught high school humanities and currently works with Facing History and Ourselves. 
Jason identifies as a white anti-racist and co-founded Aware LA, a white anti-racist affinity group space, which has also grown into a grassroots all-volunteer organization that includes a summer institute and an action wing. We explore what personal identity work means and about the role of affinity groups. Affinity groups are spaces in which folks who share a specific identity can have honest dialogue and be in community. With trained facilitators, affinity groups are safe spaces to do honest, healthy, and explicit work that is necessary to personal identity work. Jason and I talk specifically about affinity groups based on race. Hi, Jason. Hi, <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. I think you were the first white anti-racist that I met in real life and I heard speak um, and your story resonated with me so much. So thank you for that. And um, that was mainly the reason why I wanted to have this podcast with you. So the first question is, what do you think personal identity work is? Yeah, I think at the most basic level, personal identity work is asking the question of who am I and why does that matter? What are the different ways in which I show up in the world? You know, all the way ranging from what are my likes and dislikes? What are my early experiences? What are my foundational experiences? To what groups do I belong to? Social group membership? That tends to be a more tricky place because I think that's the arena of inclusion and exclusion. Mm -hmm. Who are my people? Where do I feel connected in those connections? Who's left out? Where have I felt left out mm -hmm. in that process? And I think it ultimately leads and should lead to some deep kind of interrogation of what are my values, what are my core beliefs, and what's my worldview and what's my perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think those are critically important as human beings, but definitely as teachers, because so much of that shapes our interactions. Mm -hmm. I guess that leads me into my second question, which would be, what kind of personal identity work have you done? And then how has it impacted your pedagogy? So I was sort of thrust onto the work of personal identity exploration through an amazing summer camp when I was young. I didn't even know really what I was signing up for. I knew I was interested in social justice. I knew I sort of had a, a like a vague desire for community. Mm -hmm. But a best friend of mine when I was 17 said I had to come on this seven-day retreat between my junior and senior years. And it was seven days of dialogue about identity and about positionality and about systems of oppression and advantage. It was like jumping off the edge of a cliff. I mean, it was a deep, deep dive. Mm -hmm. And it was powerful and scary, but I was navigated through it by really thoughtful, trustworthy adults mm -hmm. who knew how important this work was. And I learned in that seven days probably more than I learned in all my years of schooling. Wow. Because I had real and honest conversations across difference mm -hmm. around some of the places that were scariest to think about and name. And then I had really powerful capacity building conversations and intra group experiences, being in a room full of white people talking about institutional racism and privilege, talking about how painful it was to see the, the experience of people of color, to hear about their experiences of racism, and then think about what are our experiences of whiteness or privilege? And that led me to do ongoing work in my life around creating spaces for that ongoing identity work around whiteness, to create an, uh, an affinity group for white people to come together on a monthly basis mm -hmm. and talk about what does it mean to be white and how are we navigating the world in that way? Mm -hmm. I know I felt a pretty deep sense of alienation 
the more that I started to question these things. Mm-hmm. And so even in the most selfish respect, I wanted a community where other people might be able to relate to that experience and make me feel like I had a home in which I could be conscious and aware of whiteness and not dismiss it. Mm-hmm. Before we go into the teacher pedagogy, I was just thinking as you were sharing your story, and I'm coming to realize when I say personal identity work, I mean, it includes all the different aspects of my identity, all the different dimensions of self. And I feel myself coming always back to race. Mm-hmm. And I feel myself wanting my white colleagues and my, you know, uh, people of color colleagues to really delve into race as a foundational piece of that personal identity work. And I'm hearing for you that that was a huge part of your personal identity work. And I'm wondering what your view is on that. Like, why do you think that race component is so huge yeah. in personal identity work? It's interesting because I've also done a lot of work around gender. Mm-hmm. I, I participated in a couple different men's groups, um, people who identified as male. Some of them have been male and gender non-conforming with a specific look at toxic masculinity or patriarchy. Mm-hmm. We read Bell Hooks, The Will to Change, which is her foundational piece where she actually looks at masculinity and she spells out all of the costs to men of living in a sexist world, Mm -hmm. that it's not just about the benefits and the privileges, those exist, those need to be accounted for, but that in fact we're dehumanized in this work as well. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because the more that I've done work around race, I've realized that there are those parallels. I actually feel dehumanized by Mm -hmm. living in a racist, white supremacist society. I feel like I reclaim my humanity the more that I spend time thinking about this and talking about it and creating and building a new kind of white anti-racist culture that I hope can be available to more and more white people and especially white students, Mm -hmm. right? Young people growing up because I didn't have those options as easily uh, available. But then I go back to thinking about what was it like when I first started this journey Mm -hmm. and I was scared And, and I was actually terrified on some deep psychic level because I had internalized so deeply a sense of racism as bad people. To be racist was to be a bad person in essence, right? And I thought of myself as a good person. And to have that break apart would feel like a huge loss. And so it took a great deal of risk to, I think, be willing to step into that fear. Mm -hmm. And then once I did that, I realized, oh, it's more complex than that. It's not about good and bad people. It's about all white people. It's about even the most liberal, the most radical, the most progressive, the most good-natured, intending to do well white people still having to wrestle and grapple with the ways we've internalized negative stereotypes, the ways we've internalized white supremacist culture and ideals, and that privilege is ultimately a function of living in a system that wants us to be separated. And it took sort of sustained work to go there and to get there and to be in that place now. It still feels scary at times. I still worry about making mistakes. I I fear the loss of relationships sometimes around will my own racist mistakes cost me friendships or deep relationships? It's a deep existential fear. Mm -hmm. But so I understand why for white people it feels so loaded, why it feels so confusing, especially when we're told that like colorblindness is actually a value and an asset, that that's what it means to live true to Martin Luther King's admonition of judging people by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. We've embraced that as a society. It's woven into the entire social fabric without the substance of what it would take to get there. There's also a lot of illiteracy, I think, amongst white people around how to even read and talk and understand race. 
And if we've ever been in a position of having to learn stuff, it feels really difficult. And there's a lot of fear of failure that I think comes up. So you're a history teacher. How has doing all of this work impacted your pedagogy? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that one piece of it is um, you, you like you have to know yourself, I think, to be able to ask critical questions about what you're imparting as information to other people. And, you know, if I didn't ask these critical questions, I've read a ton of great literature. I've learned about important historical figures and important historical moments that just speak to me on so many levels. And a lot of them are rooted around whiteness. A lot of them are white authors, stories with white characters, historical moments that lift up white figures. And, you know, there, there are ways in which I might feel like, yeah, that makes sense to me. I want other people to know that. How do I start to ask myself the questions of what might be missing? Mm -hmm. How do I think about who's in my classroom and what stories they need to hear? How do I understand, like, what is an actual accurate historical interpretation of this country or the world? You know, those are different pieces that start to inform my pedagogical structure in the classroom. How do I understand that, like, I'm actually not the greatest expert or authority in the room? My students are. How do I start to dismantle some of that thinking? That has been through personal identity work. That's been understanding the ways in which whiteness or maleness or my class privilege or some of these elements have convinced me that I've, you know, they, they always tell me I have something to say, that I've got something smart to say or that I might be the expert. I need to sometimes move myself off the stage mm -hmm. and, and create the room for my students to talk and learn from their own experiences and bring their own assets into the classroom. And I don't know that I would know to do that if I wasn't asking these critical questions, mm -hmm. having community help me think about that in that reflective way. So I know that I've heard, and perhaps you've heard, teachers who just don't want to go there, right? Mm -hmm. Meaning that deep emotional place that I know I had to go to and go to when I do personal identity work. And um, kind of the myth of academia, mm. where it's, I can study the systems, I can study the history as if it's separate from the individual. And I can teach the systems and the history as something separate from me, right? So then the teachers will ask, why do I have to do this? Right? Why do I have to get emotional at my job, right? Mm -hmm. It's my job. It's not my personal life. My personal life is something separate. What would you say to those teachers? Yeah. I think that there is a huge educational industry that produces lots and lots of materials and resources. Some of it really, really good. I work for an organization that produces incredible educational units, courses of study, pedagogical approaches, and they can all be implemented and you can implement them on your own or you can get help in implementing them. Carrying them out in effective ways, in the dynamic of a classroom, in the synergy of all the identities that are showing up in a room, all the experiences, especially around exclusion or around inclusion, thinking about where we reflect ourselves in, in this work and what comes up and what questions get raised. I don't see how we can be effective teachers if we're not doing that deep capacity building internal work that often gets thought of as just personal or emotional. That is what, what we do to be these, you know, almost superhuman beings that we have to be to be educators and to do a good job of it, mm -hmm. to be able to recognize when we don't know the answer to a question and we need to model for students. In fact, I need to look that up or does anyone else have thoughts or ideas or to model for students when something's happening in, in our world, in our environment, and we're not just going to dismiss it because we're afraid to open up the emotions or not sure where it's going to go. We have to be courageous and brave to help navigate those conversations for our students and make sense of the world. 
And I think that all goes back to capacity building. And one of the things that I, I do appreciate about the work that I do in my current job of facing history and ourselves is that when we run a PD, we intentionally create the space for adult learners. We say this isn't just to model what you're going to do in your classroom. We're not just going to give you an outline. Mm -hmm. We're actually going to do this learning ourselves. We're going to challenge our assumptions. We're going to go through these lessons just the way our students would mm -hmm. because we have to remember what it's like to be learners in that moment. I think that there's so much that happens in our fast-paced worlds that makes us think we can shortcut and just go right to the toolkits, you know, and even with stuff like culturally relevant teaching, right? There's lots of great models and frameworks. Core to that work of being able to do it effectively is that self-reflection work, is that recognizing that we're all, you know, when we think about race, we're all racialized beings, not just those who typically get racialized in our, in our mainstream discourse or those who are negatively impacted, even for those of us who are white, who have advantages and unearned benefits of it, we've been racialized and we have to recognize those because it's going to skew our perspectives and our lenses of how we even implement all that curriculum. I have to talk to you about one last thing, especially since you're one of the founders of Aware LA and you create these affinity group spaces for white anti-racists. And I know for me, the first time I participated in the people of color affinity group, it was just relief, right, to have that space with people of color and to be able to have that dialogue. And I've heard from white colleagues how taken aback hmm. uh, that they were the first time they encountered it, right? Uh, it's divisive. Why are you separating us? Um, it just seems wrong. Why do you think it's so important to have that white anti-racist affinity group? Yeah. One, I, I really understand why people are thrown off by it. It seems like segregation, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we've we study the civil rights movement. We understand how much effort and risk and sacrifice it took to create integrated spaces, right? So why would we separate? I think that too often the misnomers around that and the sort of the superficial resistance to it get in the way of thinking beyond those layers to say, what is the purpose of this? How does this actually help us move towards our goals of building multiracial, multicultural community and developing real projects, ideas, solutions to create equity on our campuses. For me, it's about the most basic reason is that I, as a white person, cannot keep going to people of color to educate me about racism, mm -hmm. right? Because I will get to the point where I'll realize I don't know my own experience, right? I'm, I'm the fish in water and I can't tell what the water is. So how do I find someone who can help me deconstruct that? Mm -hmm. When I ask people of color to continuously do that education for me, I'm placing an additional burden on them as they are already navigating a world that is racist, right? And that is constantly, you know, facing an onslaught of microaggressions and racial assaults on a daily basis. So one, an affinity group for white people is a space to actually educate ourselves and take responsibility in that way. The other piece is that I do think that there needs to be a deliberate movement for white people of creating anti-racist identity. I, I think that if we, if we aren't proactive in forming that kind of an identity, if we believe that we're just going to be non-racists, by not overtly participating in racism, we're deluding ourselves and we're actually engaging in passive forms of racism. To not do anything allows the status quo to continue. Mm -hmm. uh, Beverly Daniel Tatum uses the metaphor of a people mover, a, a, like the airport, right? That's how privilege functions. If I'm just going to stand on there thinking, well, I'm not going to move with the flow. I'm not going to actively take advantage of this. I'm still getting moved from one direction to the next. And that's mm -hmm. how privilege functions. So really the option of doing something about it is to move in the opposite direction, to do something to challenge the status quo. 
And I think a, an affinity group helps us build the skills for doing that work. I know a lot of white people who wish that they could interrupt someone in their family when they make a racist comment or a friend or who wishes that they could engage in building real alliances with people of color to do really challenging work in their workplaces, their schools, their communities. And they're not sure how to start those conversations. We do role plays in AWARE all the time yeah. where it's like, let's actually practice what it's like to have this conversation so that in real life, we actually feel a little bit more ready to do that and to be able to take the action we want to take. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I think at the end of the day, what I've experienced is that people who invest in doing white anti-racist affinity group work are actually the ones who are ready to sit at the table with people of color and have a deeper, more nuanced, more honest conversation and to build more sustainable relationships to do this work. Thank you so much, Jason. I always learn something from you just sitting in your workshop. So I'm great, so grateful to have this opportunity to have a deeper conversation with you. And I'm so glad you're doing this work. And thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Our thanks to Min for producing this week's podcast. If you'd like more information on the Heinemann Fellows and their action research projects, visit Heinemann.com slash fellows for more. And our thanks to Min's guests, Monique Marshall and Jason David. For more on their work, visit the Heinemann blog and look for today's podcast post. Thanks for listening to the Heinemann Podcast.